I'm Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about alternatives um, in general and in specific sense. If we're going to be looking at two papers, um, which are actually kind of probably the most recent material we've ever covered on the show. Um, yeah, we are cutting edge in this episode. Yeah, and which is to say that the first one we're going to be looking at is was published in July of last year. Uh, <laughs> and the other one is um, very fresh. It's uh, from March of, of this year, 2018. Um, so yeah, fir- this, you know, come to General Intellect Unit for the hot takes you, you want. Um. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think our, our recording schedule isn't really well suited to, uh, to hot takes, but... Um, these ones are warmer than usual. Um, so we're starting with um, a paper published by uh, the UK Labour Party last year called Alternative Models of Ownership, um, which was basically kind of a report to the shadow cabinet on, um, yeah, exactly what the title says, looking at um, the kind of problem of capitalism, really, and private ownership and proposing alternatives um, that might actually be better for the economy. Um, and the second uh, paper we'll be looking at is... Um, as I said, from March of this year, uh, titled How to Change the Course of Human History by our old friend David Graeber and David Wengrow. And they're both sort of related in that uh, there's a theme of inequality um, and how to tackle it in both pieces and um, generally the propositions of alternative ways of living, uh, which is quite Yeah, I think it's the alternative thing we're really focusing the most on in this mm. episode. Yeah, definitely. So we'll, we'll start with the, the alternative models of ownership, which um, kind of opens uh, in this kind of really, really exciting kind of style, um, saying that, like, the economic system in Britain in its current guise has a number of fundamental structural flaws that undermine economic strength and societal well-being. And that the, the, produ- the kind of predominant problem here is private property ownership. And that this has led to, like, a lack of long-term investment, declining rates of productivity. It has undermined democracy, left regions of the country economically forgotten, and contributed to increasing levels of inequality and financial insecurity, which is a hell of a bold statement, right? Because this is, like, for anyone living in Britain, this is, like, all familiar sort of stuff. Like, this has been the character of the last couple of decades. But um, it's really interesting to have like a party that in all likelihood will be the next government of the United Kingdom actually come out and say this plainly that like, no, we're, we're, we're in the shitter. And the reason is capitalism and private property, you know? Um, right. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this paper, uh, it does have the caveat that it is the work of external experts and constitutes a report to members of the shadow cabinet. It should not be taken to represent labor party policy. Um, However, it could represent Labour Party policy in the near future. Um, and it is nevertheless a, you know, document published with the Labour Party letterhead and and formatting and everything. It's it's very much under the real auspices of the party and not um, you know, something someone on the fringe uh, published trying to to get some attention. Yeah, this this isn't the usual stuff you see where it's like some kind of fringe think tank that's like, yeah, if, if you kind of follow the connections is sort of connected to the in, inner workings of the party. No, this this actually is on the letterhead and um, references the party directly and all this sort of stuff like it is. Um, like it, it's it's refreshing. It is positive stuff, right? Like and especially I think um, in comparison to kind of where 
we are in other parts of the world with this sort of um, socialist push that like, so like I come from Ireland where the two major parties are both centre-right and they just swap power. Um, the Labour Party there is not much of anything and the kind of only left presence is Sinn Féin, which has its own kind of weird nationalist stuff going on. And then you've got like the, the, the big one in the news now or like in our sort of consciousness is the DSA in America, which is like the big left party that's you know, the, the other big left party alongside the Communist League of Idaho, you know, it's like yeah, not really um, big stuff, right? But like, um, I mean, has the potential to become very big stuff, hopefully. But this is the, the other party in one of the world's leading economies, like coming out with this stuff. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, the, the sort of key point to um, underline here is that they are calling out private property ownership as a cause of the social ills they're talking about. Um, so not simply talking about um, inequality and managing inequality, but uh, viewing inequality as a symptom of the predominance of private property ownership. Um, and that is uh, quite radical. It is, yeah. There's there's a couple of different sort of prongs of attack here. There's like, um, yeah, the, the, the underlying problem is the private property ownership. And that produces these kind of problems of like a democratic deficit, a kind of lower productivity and efficiency, which is actually kind of interesting because it's like contrary to the kind of received wisdom that private property ownership is good because the owners invest in the property and the enterprise and they make it more efficient. But like the... The claim here, and the claim a lot of socialists will be familiar with, is that actually it kind of doesn't. Like, it leads to this kind of short-termism where the capital owners are simply extracting value from uh, an enterprise and not really reinvesting in it. And that's why Britain has, like, famously low um, investment and, and productivity growth. Uh, like, fa famously low amongst the, um, the sort of advanced economies. Yeah, and uh, I believe there was a recent article I read, um, I think it was from Michael Roberts, talking about uh, this issue of um, uh, low productivity growth under neoliberalism. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, the sort of diagnosis that uh, Marx gave as to um, why this happens, uh, I think is is pretty salient. And we see as capital's power has waxed, uh, productivity growth has waned. Um, so I think that, that does uh, give um, credence to what they're saying here, both in the UK, uh, but across the OECD as well. Um, you know, it, uh, productivity growth has been extremely anemic in Canada um, for a long time as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's um, been been true throughout like basically every every part of the world that wasn't kind of where neoliberalism went to find cheap labor. Like those are the only parts of the world that saw any kind of main, meaningful growth. Like everything else has been flat essentially for the past four decades. Um, but the the other major societal ill that they're kind of um, uh, driving at here is um, the kind of regional disparity within the United Kingdom of of, of wealth that like and um, like for anyone who's not familiar like basically all growth and productivity and like sort of industry is is concentrated in London um, like London has done pretty well out of the last couple of decades and everywhere else has just spiraled uh, downwards um, 
And that's a big fucking problem, you know? And, like, I think there's there's an element here of, like, recognizing that um, the downturn in fortunes for people in elsewhere in, in the country um, had contributed to Brexit. Like, there was a lot of resentment that... Um, you know, just thing, things aren't good out in outside of the kind of um, southeast of England. Um, right. And um, I think one of the most positive things about this uh, paper is the way that it integrates the question of regional disparity into the question of class struggle. I think that's a very, very positive um, development uh, for the party to have uh, because we've seen, um, you know, kind of across the board, uh, the way in which uh, fascist parties or fascist friendly parties um, are able to take advantage of these regional disparities um, and uh and use them to uh, get to power, um, and and for um, to a considerable extent, uh, the socialists have uh, not had a very good response. So, I'm very heartened to see that uh, you know they they brought some people into writing this report who are particularly interested in these questions and. Um, also, like pretty much foreground uh, these questions of of, of uh, regional development. Um, yeah, I think it's solid political strategizing. Yeah, it's really really encouraging because, like, um, as I said, like they they have some kind of experts on the team here um, who are kind of well versed in like local development, um, and regional development, and it's it's like it is it is contrary to kind of like I think yeah, as like as you were saying, like there's been a bit of a turn in the sort of left towards. Um, decrying that any sort of localism as like a kind of crass reactionary sort of localism that like um like i think we we sort of have in at times played up the kind of internationalist um credentials a bit too much at the expense of like actual development in people's localities where they actually spend the majority of their lives you know like um and you know it, it is good to see that kind of fortune being reversed with like um because that, that is like we'll get to it a little bit later but like that's one of the kind of pillars they're sort of um propping this on is kind of like local and municipal development um and local and municipal ownership specifically um yeah it's good it's really good stuff um the other sort of thing that features pretty heavily here at least in the kind of opening bit where they sort of lay out the problem is the um impending sort of automation uh crisis like that um that the like that essentially that the country's already in a pretty bad state but that like um automation is going to make that kind of worse like it has it has an emancipatory potential but that won't be realized if we're just kind of continuing on this trajectory we'll just end up with a more unequal society and a kind of basically like high-tech neo-feudalism um yeah and i i um i appreciate that they uh raise this issue but i think that um their responses to it are fairly weak uh so we'll have to we'll have to talk about that when we when we get uh, to that point but uh yeah definitely it is um it's good that they raise it um i'm 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 much less convinced of the the remedies that they they offer there. Uh, I felt the regional development stuff was quite a bit stronger uh, than their their discussion of of, of automation. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, something we've definitely talked about on the podcast, and I'm glad it um, is it is being discussed by mm. the party. Uh, yeah, we're we're not the only not the only people worried, right? Like, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it'd be a bit weird if we were. Um, no, yeah, this, this, is, this is this is positive, right? That like, yeah, we're not barking up the wrong tree here entirely. It's um, a pressing concern. At the, like, and it's good to see. Um, like people in serious kind of positions taking it seriously um but that's sort of like it like in the kind of uh chapter one i suppose you'd call it like where they kind of outline like why these alternative models are needed that's one of the sort of things they they stand on that like we need to we need to we need new models of ownership because we kind of need to stimulate long-term economic activity and growth and product productivity we need to strengthen democracy um which is a big kind of a big problem actually in, in Britain where there's like a huge gap between the sort of voting electorate and how policy is actually decided. Um, yeah. And I like the fact that they um, raise the issue of democracy in the workplace here uh, because it's kind of, um, as they say, uh, it's taken as a given that um, we can have like, you know, this is, very uh very much a uh, characteristic of uh bourgeois democracy that um you can have democratic discussion and decision making in the public sphere but uh the workplace is a private sphere and it needs to be subject to uh, uh dictatorship by uh the owners right um and 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 sort of opening up that uh debate and and bring it uh into the spotlight i think is is really positive oh hugely yeah and it it ends up being kind of one of the um the main sort of um legs that the, the rest of the paper stands on the kind of discussion of um cooperative models and various kind of different models of workers ownership and they kind of they kind of take a look at um a couple of different examples from around uh, the european continent as well which is quite nice um, but yeah, they, they kind of outline a really strong case in these opening kind of pages where like, there is a, there is a huge problem. Uh, it needs to be addressed for these reasons, which are all solid moral reasons. Like we need, we need to strengthen democracy. We need to promote equality and financial security. Like we need to get away from this precariousness that a lot of people find themselves in. Um, they also call, call out, like, specifically the failures of privatization, that, like, the wave of privatization that's happened over the last couple of decades hasn't created more effic efficient or uh, effective services. It, and the market hasn't lowered costs. It has instead produced worse services at higher costs. Um, and coupled with more bureaucratic friction and just kind of the overhead of putting stuff out to tender and having a bunch of assholes squabble over the contract. Um, yeah, like, it's it's good good to call this out. Like, this hasn't been good at all. Um, and, like, yeah, and the, the, the specter of the kind of automation looms as well here, where, like, um, they kind of outline a couple of, like, possibilities, like, in, in the sort of second section for, like, if we stay on a business-as-usual trajectory, what's this going to look like with automation? And it's going to look like job losses, more inequality, It'll 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 result in a productivity boom of sorts, um, but will kind of like, and it's it's interesting that they point this out that it will sort of radically alter the nature of work and the kind of people's relation to time and income and work will change, um, which is good because like that's social relations right like that's the stuff we need to be watching for that like it's not 
it's not that just that you get uh, self-driving Ubers. It's that you're, you and everyone around you, your relation to your employment and to your income and to your living situation and to how you spend your time, all of that shifts and changes. Um, and it's going to change for the worse, right? Like, it's going to be more precarious. Like, you'd, you'd kind of, like, you would hope it would change for the better, right? That, like... Um, robots and cool stuff like that would help you live a more dignified life that's uh, got more kind of um, relaxation in it. But no, if like again in the paper, like if we continue on this trajectory, that's not going to happen. We're instead going to get this kind of like increased precarity. Um, it's great, great to call out, you know. Yeah, and I, I also appreciate that you know they've they've uh, they present some some summarized research here as to like sort of like well you know like some people think this might happen other people think it it might be more like this but one way or the other there's going to be big changes uh, driven by automation and you know they 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 do talk about. Uh, the ownership of capital being key to the outcomes of uh, increased automation. Um, so that is, that's encouraging. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it calls us back to our second episode with Four Futures, right? That like the, the kind of the key thesis of that book was that, yeah, you, you can have these kind of like material conditions of like, or this sort of uh, automation, but what actually shapes the outcome is like ownership, social relations, and politics. Um, so they're, they're kind of they're calling that out as well. That like no, this, it like the the, the kind of techno determinism is is truly wrong headed in the, um, like no like politics and ownership relations have a major 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 impact on how this stuff actually plays out. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that uh, what they they say um, is very much a piece of what we've been saying. Uh, for example, uh, here it says um, uh, the automation of the economy risks entrenching a new form of economic feudalism. Those who own the robots will reap the rewards. The rest will struggle as human labor becomes less and less important in the production process. However, the bigger immediate challenge is not the imminent rise of the robots, but that too many people will remain trapped in robotic, drudgery-filled, and low-productivity jobs. In this context, accelerating automation is a key political project. The goal should be to embrace the technological potential of modernity, accelerating into a more automated, productive future with all its liberating possibilities, while building new institutions around ownership, work, leisure, and investment, where technological change is shaped by the common good. On board with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's good stuff. And, like, it's... Um, like, this, this, this sort of... I know the, the kind of term accelerationism gets sort of a, a bad rap with like this. It's kind of important to note in this in this specific context, it is like entirely in the context of creating a good future for people to actually live in, right? Like it's, we're not talking Nick Land sort of accelerationism here. This is um, uh, something that's kind of like, yeah, at least the way it's presented isn't, isn't particularly objectionable or that like, I think what what I like about it is again is this fusion of like there will be technological advancement and it is also crucial that we um you know steer the political process and the kind of way that ownership relations in the society develop to ensure that it doesn't end up being a hellscape and that it actually ends up being you know Star Trek style fully automated luxury communism instead. Um yes. Yeah, it's cool. So it's, yeah. as as far as sort of like identifying the issue 
identifying our sort of big picture where we want to go and how we feel about uh, this topic, I think that this section is quite good. Uh, the point that I think stands for some criticism is the uh, potential ways to address the problem. Um, so they have like a few bullet points here, um, potential policies. Uh, so these are things like, um, so new model, models of collective democratic ownership to ensure that the economic benefits of automation are widely shared. Uh, then they bring up some examples like uh, national profit sharing schemes, um, the growth of cooperatives and mutuals, uh, establishing a sovereign wealth fund uh, where there's like a certain amount co uh, contributed by uh, corporations uh, to the fund. Um, they talk about higher wage floors. Uh, they talk about um, uh, education and skills training, uh, a shorter work week, uh, potentially a universal basic income. Um, these are all things worth discussing. Unfortunately, there's no discussion in this report. So I kind of feel like, yeah, gesturing in this direction is, is a positive. However, this subject definitely needs its own report. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> right? Um, they kind of do this yeah. thing in, in a lot of these sections where they close out on a couple of bu quick bullet points and then a further reading list. Um, and it's like it, it is, you know, it is fully, well, not fully cited, but like it is, there's always a bit at the end where it's like um, pointing you towards further reading. And it's like, I don't know, it would be nice to see this report be twice as long, maybe with like some exploration of um, of these topics, you know, these um, these potential policies. Because like, I think that there's a bit of a gap in this paper between the like quality of how the problem is outlined and how like the sort of sketch of the solutions are outlined versus kind of like some of the material on the actual kind of propositions for um, uh, for alternatives is is either sort of not really there. Like like universal basic income is just a kind of like like a three word sort of bullet point there. Um, that, like, yeah, and I think there's uh, a, the focus is a little bit lopsided towards cooperatives and. Um, and uh, regional development. Uh, I think these are both sort of important things to discuss, but uh, this chapter feels like it's um, it's it's been uh, cut down a little bit more than it should have been. Um, I would have liked to see, you know, maybe another page or two discussing these questions um, because the what is there is good. It's just not enough. Because, um, like, I mean, honestly, for me as somebody who is familiar with the arguments that they raise in the first section, I would be a lot more interested in knowing what they have to say about these more sort of detailed proposals about what to do, right? Because um, like, I feel like that's what a lot of people would be, you know, uh, far more interested in and want to know. And they've got the kind of magic word there, or the magic, the magic words of universal basic income, in which like people's ears prick up these days when they're like, oh, tell me more. And it's like, yeah, it's a bit disappointing that there's not more of um, an exploration of that. Um, yeah, but they, they do sort of move on in, in section three to like enumerating different models of alternative kind of ownership, um, starting out with cooperatives, which are sort of um, an old classic. Um, yeah, they kind of like, um, 
they do a sort of decent uh, job of kind of breaking down like cooperatives as they sort of exist in the UK, which um, which don't have a huge amount of like legal or kind of like structural support. But then they also go on to talk about um, examples from uh, Italy and Spain and France, which like do have much better sort of legal systems that like really help that sector to thrive there, um, which is very interesting. Yeah, um, I think the, these are good examples they bring up. Um, I think that uh, they also do a very good job of sort of um, addressing the question of why cooperatives are so marginal, um, even in the co- even in the countries where uh, they are um, most successful in the advanced capitalist countries that they are, they are the most successful in. They are still very marginal in terms of the overall economy, um, and. Uh, they make the case that, as you said, it's the it's the the legal and regulatory framework, but it is also um, the difficulty of cooperatives in uh, raising uh, funds from uh, the capitalist market and the need for supporting financial institutions. Um, that can both uh, sort of like hold the different cooperatives together and prevent them from just selling out to the capitalists, um, but also sort of like, you know, allocate funds where they're needed so that they can uh, continue investing in the means of production in their workplaces and uh, improving their productivity. Because the sort of chronic problem with pro- uh, cooperatives is that they... Um, aren't able to raise funding and then because they aren't able to raise funding they become uncompetitive because they aren't able to buy the latest generation mm. of the means of production yeah they seem to also be kind of sensitive to um or be more sensitive to the kind of ups and downs of the um of the of business where um they sort of like make a good good job of outlining that like at the at, at the very least cooperatives don't seem to have a disadvantage uh, versus their kind of more traditional kind of um, peers. And in some cases, they do actually have productivity advantages, but that the, the productivity advantages they have are kind of static, and then they tend to suffer dynamically where other firms are able to kind of borrow to get through bad times and such. Um, right. And and I think this brings up a larger sort of issue um, in terms of understanding uh, how cooperatives figure into like the social socialist project, which is that... Um, when we talk about cooperatives as a means of uh, socializing or uh, reappropriating the means of production, um, it's true that they are a way you can do that, right? Like you can buy out your workplace um, if it's failing. Uh, you can, uh, you know, pool together resources to. Um, to start a cooperative and to acquire some means of production, which is something that as an individual, uh, you aren't really able to do. Um, However, what this issue of access to finance highlights and this issue of sort of the lack of dynamic productivity highlights is that we need to think about the means of production in a more sort of like dynamic and holistic sense um that that finance access to finance is another way of talking about 
access to the means of production, right? So when, when we see these reasons for cooperative failure, we can tie it into that issue and um, that critique of private ownership of the means of production, um, as, it, as opposed to just seeing it as something innately problematic about the cooperative form of production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it, it does seem like like the the evidence presented is that when when they do when they're doing fine, they do fine. Like they're they're on par with their other peers that are, are not cooperatives. Um, but yeah, the access to finance is a major one, and like the, the the kind of the the watchword that they they for what they're proposing here is like these shelter organizations that um, are tasked with like strengthening that that sector. And like one of the better examples they have is of. Um, the Mondragon group of uh, cooperatives in Spain, where they actually have like basically a credit union of their own as a part of the uh, umbrella organization. And that's like tasked with like providing finance to these cooperatives. Um, and um, no, they, they seem to have like their stable businesses in like in, in this sort of example, they're stable businesses with high rates of investment. And they have this um, umbrella group sort of watching their back, which is quite nice. Um, there was also some interesting details about um, how the sort of legal structures help to reinforce these businesses where um, I think in, in, it might be Spain as well, or maybe it's Italy, where the law kind of stipulates that the cooperative must put aside some large proportion of its um, profit into a like untouchable fund that's like there to get them through bad things. And also that fund can't be acquired through buying the cooperative. Right. And that that is absolutely essential, because if you just make uh, the assets of a cooperative liquid, um, as they are in uh, most capitalist economies, um, there is a very strong incentive, given the sort of um, reward structure that exists with cooperatives, like, you know, given their difficulty of raising funds and um you know that that concern about falling productivity uh, for the owners of the uh, cooperative, the worker worker owners, um, to just sell out uh, literally to sell sell their their means of production, sell off everything, um, li uh, liquidate the company, and uh, and and just put those back into the hands of capitalists. Um, in order to, you know, basically have a retirement fund or whatever, or like, like basically to to get out with something, um, and uh, I believe it was the case of Italy uh, where you know there was a long uh, process of uh, development of a legal and. Um, sort of organizational structure to support cooperatives uh, under the leadership of the Communist Party um, after the Second World War. Um, and I think the important thing to note here is that the, the structures they have and the, the what limited success cooperatives have had within the context of Italian capitalism was the result of like a multi-decade struggle in order to establish these forms of social ownership, right? Um, so it, it goes to show how difficult it is 
to create a shelter organization, to create a label, uh, sorry, a legal framework, um, and so on, to actually facilitate the existence of some social ownership uh, within a capitalist economy. Yeah, it's um, it's tough, and that's that's kind of like um, that's the the sort of gist of a lot of the recommendations at the end of the section that like. Um, need to like you know put the the proper sort of legal and governmental support in place for to bolster the sector like making funds available for worker buyouts of firms is also kind of nice little thing that features there and just in general improving access to finance for these um these cooperatives like i suppose along the lines of what mondragon has with their um internal credit union um but yeah there is that there is still that kind of predicament where like the very best examples we have of that, the sort of uh, Italy and Spain are examples that took decades upon decades to develop and are still kind of like minority uh, stakes within their economies because they are embedded in a capitalist economy. So, um, yeah, and one thing they don't bring up um, in uh, this paper, which I think is a major weakness of the paper, is they do not bring up. Um, the history of uh, market socialism or the history of cooperatives within uh, communist states. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Which is like relevant because there have been economies, like, I mean, most notably, the um, there is the case of uh, the Yugoslavian economy um, where cooperatives were far more prevalent. Um, in the composition of the overall economy. Um, and that presented its own sort of uh, contradictions and difficulties in terms of their organization, the effect they had on, on, on regions and their relation to the state and the finance the state provided. But none of that is discussed in this paper. And it's like its existence is completely erased from this paper. Uh, they are only they are only interested in in uh, in cooperatives within advanced capitalist countries. Um, yeah, it's a it's a gap. It certainly is a gap in the kind of um, the thinking here. Um, and um, no, that those those are fantastic examples. And actually, like uh, without spoiling too much for the listeners, we'll be going in that direction pretty soon, um, investigating some of that stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it it's an omission. It it really is. Um, and uh, the the other sort of point to to bring up here is that um, uh, they they do talk a lot about um, access to finance and the importance of access to finance. But um, you know, as we we sort of said that um, when we talk about cooperatives' lack of access to finance, we are talking about access to the means of production. Right. That's really what we're talking about here. Um, and we're we're really talking about class power. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, m money uh, isn't just money. It's liquefied labor yeah. and class power in, in a fl fluid form. Yeah. And so, you know, what is the absolute predominant, most powerful institution in British society? It's the banks, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And like, <laughs> it's the finance sector. <laughs> Here's a thought um, experiment for the listener. How would you socialize the city of London? Yeah. Would you, would right? you even because want to take on that challenge? <laughs> if we're serious about making cooperatives a like 
you know, significant, let's say like maybe 30 to 40 percent composition of the British economy, then that requires some major financial support. Um, and that's not going to be something funded out of municipal taxes, right? This is this is going to be a thing that has to like you know seriously alter the makeup and layout of finance in the UK. Yeah, it would. Um, and like I think I think there's been sort of whisperings and such, or it might even be like it might have been the electoral sort of platform for Labour uh, of establishing like a national investment bank or something along those lines, but like. We need to see what the details of that are, because if it's just sort of putting tax receipts aside for, um, I don't know, like helping farmers markets off the ground or something, um, and it doesn't really involve a substantial restructuring of how capital itself operates within the uh, within the country, then I don't know, it mightn't, mightn't be all that big of a sort of deal, you know? Right. It's like uh, if, if we're going to question the validity of um, private property, then we need to think profoundly about what that means and what kind of strategies and policies can be used in order to um, successfully socialize uh, property and uh, and and the means of production. It's a big one. That's it's a it's a tough one. Yeah, and it's, it <laughs> it's, is it's like yeah, not, not to trivialize it at any level. It's just like pointing out how important this is, um, because you know, the, in the case of Mondragon, which has like sort of the largest uh, bank or uh, a credit union backing it, um, that was something that was developed within the context of like a national struggle, uh, a national independence struggle that. Um, like is not applicable to the UK in any meaningful sense. Uh, like the, it's just it's just not like not relevant. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, I guess like sort of um, the thing here is that like because the because the mention of finance just isn't in the paper. Like it leaves you with kind of two possibilities: either either there is a plan and it's just not in the paper, which is a problem um, because it means that like. Contrary to kind of the um, the talk in this paper about uh, democratic deficits and such, and the need for like inclusive democratic planning, like if there if the plan for finance is being cooked up behind closed doors, and that's a bit of an issue, or or there isn't a plan, which is not reassuring, you know. Um, yeah, both are bad options, right? Yeah, On the one hand, it's, it's like rough. we need to hide like our real plans from the actual people who support us in the in in an effort to maintain control over the media narrative um which is not good because um what we've seen time and again and again and again and again and again and again is that these kinds of uh approaches to social democratic politics lead to a lot of wishful thinking uh among the activist base uh because the party encourages uh, sort of um, projecting our fantasies onto what they might do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even even like while reading this paper, I found myself falling into that kind of wishful thinking adjacent sort of space of like, I wonder if they're pulling their punches, you know, and like, and yeah, like as as we discussed, like that's kind of, you know, like not good. If, if they are, it's not good. And if they're not, it's not good. It's mm, 
it's not a, not a great position to be in. And um, yeah, uh, it would be really great to see some kind of strong mention of like what it would take to socialize the actual sort of means of production in the contemporary age, which is the kind of like, or like a huge component of it, which is finance. Um, yeah. And, and actually just to sort of uh, point out some other kind of alternative work that's happening right now. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know that there is a fair bit of discussion currently in Cuba um, as to uh, the idea of sponsoring cooperatives and um, increasing the amount of cooperatives in the Cuban economy. Um, so, you know, that's that's another point that uh, I, I would like to see discussed. And, and, and uh, you know, obviously, that's a communist country. Um, the way that ownership works there is vastly different from the UK. But nevertheless, they are in the same kind of like speculative and experimental mood um, as as this paper. So, um, you know, it's it's worth pointing out that, like, there are experiments happening in the world. Right. Like, it's not just these legacy uh, structures um, that we see in Spain and Italy, which, um, you know, are kind of the the leftovers of of previously vital political movements um nevertheless i will say they do give a lot of good details about sort of like possibilities for um actually sponsoring uh cooperatives in the uk uh, at the sort of like cooperative level or like lower level policy level um, which is, is something that they didn't really have in the automation section. And so uh, it, it's nice to see these details here. Um, absolutely. Well, I think you can, you can kind of tell they've got some kind of experts on staff here but for the writing of this paper um, to kind of lend their kind of expertise to that. Um, and like the, the next sort of section then is about uh, municipal and sort of locally led uh, ownership, um, which is which is stuff of the kind where it's like... Um, kind of uh, organizations that are more akin to kind of uh, non-profits that are kind of like um, built around like like specifically developing and helping local infrastructure um, and like uh, also like uh, stimulating local businesses um, which um, is a is a big sort of component of this kind of reaction to the centralization of all sort of wealth on this island in london right like that um yeah and like they go through a couple of um a couple of sort of examples there of like um uh you know community run cafes or whatever or little farmers markets and so on um but also like the kind of the non-profit side of it like the kind of development trusts which could even be higher level organizations that are like umbrellas for these kind of local initiatives but um yeah, the, the the kind of one of the key bits here, and it's kind of the most I think most interesting is that like they're also trying to stimulate the local businesses and the local sort of area by allowing um, local government to kind of direct their purchasing through the locality instead of going through London to get the kind of nationwide suppliers, um, which is cool, you know. Um, yeah, um, I think that. Uh you know, localism is something that, of course, uh, we should be wary of um, as as a as a sort of overriding ideology. But um, I think there is a role for kind of um, 
like intelligent assessment of regional economies and 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 seeing like how development of various sectors and and bring those things together can create sort of like a more livable local economy um you know i think in 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 many cases it makes a lot more sense to use uh mass production um mass transportation um and and delivery and all that kind of thing you know like uh i i don't know if we've talked about it on the show yet but like definitely sort of this idea of like socializing amazon um i think has a lot of merit nevertheless if everybody um everybody's house is just a delivery point for the um massive amazon-like distributor it does create a very kind of like disjointed uh urban environment or local environment which is something like i don't i don't want to see you know i um and and i think it's something worth talking about absolutely yeah and i think it's it's especially it has been i mean this is this will be true throughout a lot of the kind of developed world but like it has it has been true for britain that like um a lot of parts of this country are just fucking left behind like um and have no development whatsoever they're kind of crumbling infrastructure um and there's that kind of sense of hopelessness and so on um, yeah, and yeah. I, I think one of the key points they bring up here is this idea of moving anchor institutions out of London to the rest of the country, right? Um, and I like I know that is a thing that was discussed in Japan um, following the uh, you know Tohoku disaster, um, uh, the the tsunami and such uh, because of the massive vulner- <clears throat> massive vulnerability of having all of the sort of nerve centers of Japan focused in Tokyo which is like a rather dangerous location um that didn't happen um obviously uh there are very 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 strong forces that uh contribute to concentration of power um, and and sort of like networking of of um, these like ultra cities, right? Uh, but um, it's definitely a thing I've seen in my lifetime uh, how these kind of anchor institutions can change a community. Um, you know, uh, for example, one thing that was really consequential in my my hometown of uh, of Kamloops in uh, in Canada. Uh, was the upgrading of our local college to university. Um, and that has had an enormous impact on uh, the way the community looks um, and how it is organized. Um, so I really do think that um, this kind of like strategy of establishing anchor institutions in the rest of the country and then uh, creating plans to develop the, the locality around them um, does have legs and, and could do a lot to help uh, counteract the, the, you know, the last like uh, more or less like 40 years of disaster um, that we've seen. Right. Yeah, definitely. And like, I think like as, as much as like we need to be on guard against the sort of reactionary localism, like, People, people got to live places, you know, like it's, um, it's only fair that like the places people live be 
livable, you know, like and not disgusting shitholes like that nobody would want to live in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and and I mean, as far as like uh, the affordability crisis in London, um, like building up regional centers would help with that. Right? Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, obviously, the primary issue is ownership of land and who is housing constructed for and what quality of housing is available to uh, the majority of people versus an ultra-rich. But at the same time, uh, making other parts of the country livable places would do a lot to help with this issue, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, it would. Um, Yeah, no, that's it's it's a good section. Um, It's a decent section. Uh, I think there's like like legs in a lot of these kind of ideas um and also just like they have some examples of like where these kind of things have been tried um uh and and you know had some success so uh that that's nice to see um it's 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 clear that like the a number of the authors on this paper were like kind of experts in this issue so yeah yeah it's good to see um and like in case it's not clear to the listener like we recommend you actually read this. Like it is pretty good. It is a good read, and we're we're it's very over short. It. Yeah, it's a it's a fine little sort of short read. Um, but it does have more detail than we're we're kind of able to give it at the moment. Um, but uh, moving on, anyway, the kind of last sort of proposed um, set of kind of um, alternative ownership models is actually kind of an old classic. It's uh, the national ownership, um, which uh, we have we've quite a bit of a bit of a history within in Britain, like. Um, NHS, BBC, the Highways England, like the the network rail, which I think is now mostly privatized, but um, and what like Royal Mail used to be um, a national sort of um, company as well. Um, yeah, I mean, like there's there's kind of not a lot here that would wouldn't already be sort of familiar with that. Um, the the kind of big upside here is that like national companies can provide like patient capital for development, that they're not driven by short term profit motives. They can actually kind of invest in the long term and this is great for kind of for nation- nationwide infrastructure and for like natural monopolies like energy production and distribution um or kind of like those sort those sort of like industries where like leaving it up to the free market actually just ends up like concentrating power in a an actual monopoly that like isn't under state ownership and so things get kind of shitty um yeah no it's a it's a good section um there's a there's a particular warning against the pitfalls of like partial state ownership where the state doesn't actually control the business they're more like a silent partner that provides funding yeah um, or national um national firms nationalized firms that um are given a mandate of just like a normal profit motive like all, all your all you exist to do is to um, drive some of your profits back into the national budget, right? Yeah, which is um, which isn't great because like it's 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 it's, just, it's also just not a good fit for the national ownership model because again, like the the, the where this really really works is in nation scale infrastructure and like things where you need to plan on quite a long horizon to um upgrade infrastructure which which the uk actually like desperately does need um the big example of that being um kind of like broadband infrastructure is actually pretty poor 
um, in this country. And it's like, it's all kind of developed and upgraded uh, piecemeal by private companies. And it's like, well, what we really should do is nationalize all that shit and like lay really good fiber optics throughout the entire um, country. Right. Um, mm. So, yeah, that kind of infrastructure stuff is absolutely um, something that is ripe for nationalization. Um, and, you know, previously mentioned nationalizing Amazon, again, uh, that would be another very good uh, example of uh, something that is like crucial infrastructure and could be operated uh, on a nationalized basis. Yeah, um, that'd be good. Um, we're coming for that toothbrush, Jeff. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, a key thing about uh, nationalization in the UK specifically was that uh, the earlier wave of nationalization in the wake of the Second World War uh, was something that was um, not done with any kind of uh, democratic element in mind. Uh, it was something that was done out of economic necessity and it was done under a sort of developmentalist ideology. Um, and so uh, it it didn't have any kind of social mandate. Yeah, um, which, which ended up kind of producing a sort of resentment amongst the kind of general population, actually, where these were seen as uh, business, like uh, as jobs that were providing like very cushy sort of working conditions to... Um, I mean, this was the perception, at least, that it was like um, that these were places that weren't particularly productive, but um, were well sheltered. And like there wasn't a, the, the population at large didn't have a say in how anything was run. Um, and that kind of gave Thatcher, et cetera, a bit of ammunition to kind of say, well, these these bloated public institutions are providing shelter for skivers essentially and like well let's tear them down and like there's a kind of debate to be had about the extent to which that was actually true versus it being a kind of ginned up perception but like like it was when you don't have that democratic mandate and people in general don't feel that they're involved in the running of these things it will breed a certain kind of resentment yeah and um i think another uh point that is 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 pretty um instructive from sort of what I've seen in my, my home province in Canada is that if you have um, a state corporation uh, that is uh, answerable only to its executive board or to the government that owns it, um, and you don't have a uh, board that is formed of like uh, sort of multiple stakeholders, um, you can run into situations of the government pilfering uh, funds from the corporation in order to uh, conduct sort of short-term political objectives. Uh, so, for example, in my in my home province of uh, British Columbia, um, the na uh, the the nationalized um, uh, insurance corporation uh, and the hydro corporation, the uh, the hydroelectric power corporation, uh, had their budgets hollowed out by the previous uh, neoliberal uh, bourgeois kind of party uh, when it was in government um, and are now in sort of a really parlous state financially and have kind of, they, they kind of like um, just through corruption um, and siphoning of funds, they managed to really kind of like ruin the finances of the province. 
Um, whereas if you had a board that was made up of you know worker represented worker representatives and uh, sort of like citizen representatives as well as managers and uh, government representatives, it would be less likely for that kind of uh, really shady crap to happen. Right? Yeah, because you, you'd have scrutiny. Like, democratic oversight and scrutiny is the kind of watchword. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, they, they actually do provide a pretty nice uh, little case study here about Statoil in, uh, in the paper. Um, and just, like, how... The governance of Statoil, which is the gigantic uh, Nor uh, Norwegian uh, state-owned oil firm, uh, changed over time. So it 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 didn't uh, it didn't start with any kind of social mandate, but uh, it did get one. And um, there's slowly been a move towards. Uh, altering its objectives in accordance with sort of the democratic will um, and and uh, focusing on reducing the carbon footprint of the country and developing alternative energy. And also I know like, you know, Statoil does provide a lot of like sort of um, funding for social activities and stuff like that, uh, which um, you could on the one hand see as a way of... Uh, sort of buying the complicity of the population with this oil extraction company. But on the other hand, you could see it as preferable to say uh, what BP does. Yeah, um, yeah, certainly. <laughs> like, this, I think that this all hinges on, um, what was the institution called? The, the Petroleum Directorate, which was a separate organize, organization from Statoil, which was charged with administering and kind of regulating and controlling those uh, oil and gas resources. So you had like, um, yeah, separate institutions that were kind of like charged variously with like actually running oil extraction operations and um, separately like studying or kind of like taking into account how um, this would impact society and just all, all sorts of good stuff there that like really drew the uh, the population of the country into the kind of management process of this this thing. Um, and there's there's a strong sense from this case study that the the oil resources were seen as a a common resource that had to be managed for the common good. Like that was that was how it was going to be run. Um, which is in con in contrast with like other countries. And I think I think Ireland basically handed over all of its sort of oil resources to um, to Shell for for nothing really. And like there was a, there was big pushback then uh, around the turn the turn of the century actually. I think to the two thousands or so. If I'm remembering correctly, um, and yeah, there was there was outrage that that was happening. But like, yeah, this corrupt sort of center right government just said, yeah, yeah, have have all these resources. We don't we don't give a shit about them. And like, we were comparing that situation to Statoil of like, well, yeah, absolutely, that was the case in um, in Alberta uh, when I was living there as well and working for the the social democrats there i mean i think that what what has actually ended up happening with the government there has been an absolute catastrophe but uh they definitely you know were looking to stat oil as a kind of beacon of like this is how uh resource firms should be run yeah um, yeah yeah um no great stuff um but so the paper sort of wraps up with um this short section on kind of next steps. Um, and it has this kind of really great little, um, this great set of lines where they're kind of like pointing out that like 
there, there are deep structural flaws that stem from the dominant model of firm and asset ownership. And that, you know, we, we want to take these steps to challenge this model and to build a sort of better society. And that the historic name for that society is socialism. And that is labor's goal. Like it is, it is right, right there and explicit that no, we're going to challenge this stuff and dismantle it and replace it with socialism. Like, that's good, you know. Um, for as many issues as the paper has, like, I like the energy of it, you know, just the the sheer kind of, like, exuberance with which it sort of pursues this, like, and quite, quite like, nakedly pursues this sort of thing of, like, because, like, the Labour has, or especially the kind of Corbyn um, wing of Labour has been taking a lot of shit of, like, oh, you know, they're, they're all commie spies or uh, they're all kind of this. And they're like, no, well, you know what, we, we kind of actually are. Like, this is just nakedly what we're <laughs> after. Like, it's... Um, <laughs> and not even not even hiding it anymore is is fantastic because like yeah uh, it is is certainly refreshing for them to be able to openly criticize private property and speak about socialism as a desirable outcome for British society. Um, yeah, it's good, but um, the sort of the, the last couple of bits are the um, kind of recommendations. And they're they're a little bit weaker than I'd like because it's it's sort of stuff like, oh, examine and it's it's again this kind of short bullet list sort of format where it's like examine key sectors of the economy which would be better off under national government intervention, um, draw draw up a priority list of policies to further develop uh, kind of local government stuff, um, and sort of like the last one is is interesting but it's like prepare a policy document for publication at the earliest possible opportunity. Like okay, right, cool, but like I'd like to see it, you know, like as soon as possible, please. Um, yeah, and and again, I think that it is very concerning that um, there's not any discussion about uh, socialization of finance as really being a priority that needs to be in that report, uh, in that publication. Uh, which is like, this is kind of the most pressing issue because they talk in this report again and again about how a lack of access to finance is something that creates precarity and frustrates sort of bottom-up efforts at socializing production. But they don't talk about how do we change things? How do we make that finance available, right? Um, and that's a really big concern. Um, it's really uh, because, you know, honestly, there is a there's a part of me that always wants to support um, these kinds of social democratic projects uh, when they get close to power. Right. Like it's like, wow, like, you know, maybe something's actually going to happen. But there's also a part of me that has been. Um, hugely disappointed by the results and, and and a part of me that is cognizant of how destructive it is when these movements fail right um you know like it's nice to talk about the things that Allende did when he was in power we also need to recognize that the result of his government was a real setback for workers um, in Chile, right? Under Pinochet. Um, like it, um, we need to recognize that the results of what Syriza did in Greece has been really bad, right? Like um, the stakes, the stakes in these kinds of situations are not just 
that the Social Democratic Party might be voted out of government. It's that it causes despair and demobilization among working people when our hopes and dreams are crushed and when these parties fail to achieve what they say they're going to achieve. So I'm not attacking uh, the party for uh, its agenda. And like, I think this is definitely like friendly criticism, but it's, it's just voicing a real concern I have about the consequences of failure um, and, and the consequences of not being open about what the party is planning and, and uh, having a plan uh, for, for coming to power and actually realizing these things that they want to do. Um, yeah, and I mean, uh, I think that the road to socialism is a road that can only be built with popular mobilization. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is something to always keep in mind. Uh, if, if a socialist party is deciding to hide things from their constituents or deciding to take um, the strategic path that focuses on internal strategizing or um, prioritizes accommodation with the media over um, actually making statements that will get people fired up and moving and in the streets and actually continuing to push forward socialist activity outside of what is happening in parliament, then that's a very serious cause for concern because the media, the banks, all of these institutions and cornerstones of society, they don't have the popular interests at heart um, and they can't be trusted as reliable allies. Yes, from time to time, you know, there may be a point where there is a possibility for, you know, working together. Um, there is a possibility for, for common interests or compromises. But ultimately, the, the, cons the constituency of socialism is the people, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it is. And like, yeah, ooh, yeah. I mean, like, I want, to, I want to be wrong on this. Like, it would be, I want, I want to see more from Labour pushing more of this sort of agenda and being bolder about it um, in the near future because um, that this kind of boldness has paid off so far. I mean, we had this kind of huge yeah, electoral I mean, upswing. Like we see, we've saw those those rallies for Corbyn or the speeches that Corbyn made in public um, that really got a reaction out of people. Mm. Uh, was it last year, right? Um, and And like that was an example of the kind of politics that will lead to victory. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, like, so I think actually coming out with it and saying, yeah, we're going after the bankers, like that could actually be the best move possible like that. Yeah. And mobilize. I mean, they have made some statements to that effect. It's just, I want to see what's the plan, right? Yeah, what's yeah. the, what's, what are they going to do? I want to see this kind of paper again with that plan in it, like a, a plan for yeah, how yeah, yeah. to take down finance. I would like it very much. Um, so I think over overall, like a, a good good piece of reading, um, with you know that pretty pretty big caveat as well um, that there is a there is a gaping hole where finance should be in this um, in this plan, and we kind of hope that it, it gets filled in pretty soon. Um, yeah, because 
without without a plan for that, it's going to be just chaos. Or or again, the kind of like the bad possibility that there is a plan, but it's kind of not actually being developed in the open. Um, no, but um, in general, like again, really really cool to see this being. Um, what what is effectively policy? I mean, it's it's on the doorstep of being policy for <laughs> the opposition party of one of the, the world's major economies. Yeah, that's great. Um, shall we move on to the second piece? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Cool. I think I don't think it's got quite as much in it um, for us to talk over, but um, yeah. So like the second piece here is um, how to change the course of human history by David Graeber and David Wengrow. Um, released in March of this year, which is still, um, it still is March, isn't it? Yeah, so this, this is yep. hot off the presses by our standards. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I liked this a lot when I, when I read it, because um, it's got this sort of, like, um, general sort of vibe of, like, opening up possibilities and, like, opening up alternatives as well, uh, of a very different kind than in the, uh, the previous uh, article. But um, the, the gist here is that... Um, we, we sort of tell ourselves this story about human inequality, but the story is wrong and has been wrong all along. Like this, this is about kind of anthropology and the archaeological uh, record. Um, and the, the gist of the story is that like once upon a time we had primitive communism where tiny egalitarian hunter bands um, roamed around and had great times and such. But then along came agriculture and then everything went bad and we got private property uh, you know, cities, like real, in quotes, civilization, war, conflict, all this kind of nasty stuff. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tale of a fall from grace, really, like a, a tale of a kind of an original sin that um, made it so that our advanced societies are condemned to always be unequal. We are condemned to always have these hierarchies because we fell from that state of innocence into a state of, uh, of hierarchy and sort of power. Uh, and it kind of turns out this is actually nonsense, really. Um, that there's there's no there is no evidence to support that. In fact, like not only was there no evidence, the the very proposition itself originated as a thought experiment, um, for which the the author uh, Rousseau was very clear. Like this this isn't a thing God, that I think happened in history. This is a thought experiment. But you know, it's it's really infected our thinking. And um, I was really glad to see. Uh, the authors here put together a fairly coherent, like, counter-argument for, for this stuff, you know? Yeah, um, I think this article is a little bit hard for me to assess because I know so little about anthropology. That doesn't stop um, me. I have bound <laughs> But uh, I do... Um, I do really appreciate, as they say in the, the article, that they bring a lot of like evidence that's kind of like hidden in academic journals here and there uh, to light and sort of like throw it out there as a way of like getting a conversation going about this topic. Right? Yeah, there's there's a sense in which that like this is more recent uh, archaeological and anthropological sort of study that's... Um, not yet made its way to the kind of pop science uh, bookshelves um, and is currently in sort of journals and such. And um, it's sort of, they, they don't really have um, concrete answers at the end. They're instead kind of throwing the barn door open and sort of saying, look, this, this is now an open field of inquiry. It's not actually locked down. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think the, the things they're really criticizing here are, 
the idea of agriculture as a kind of original sin that created a complex division of labor and then from there created inequality, right? That's like one major point. Another point is that they are criticizing the idea of inequality, um, that, you know, this, this idea of like this way of thinking about society in terms of inequality is one which uh, privileges a kind of management of inequality mm. or management of society. Yeah, um, the way they put it is that it's um, this framing of inequality is well suited to technocratic reformers, and it sort of dissuades us from thinking about things like capital and class as the root of our observed problems. Right. And I mean, this is uh, really obvious uh, if you sort of look at some of the reports that come out of like Davos or uh, uh, reports that come out of banks uh, writing about this issue or, um, you know, even this this recent uh, FT uh, editorial that we were talking about, uh, about uh, the Communist Manifesto and how, um, you know, really... Uh, in order to address inequality as opposed to uh, the question of private property um, is, is what we need to do to address our social problems. Um, and really the best way to, to address inequality is to encourage shareholder activism. Um, you know, yeah. you, you, you kind, of, kind of get a Ooh. range of like that kind of, uh, well, let's just say uh, interesting... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> perspective uh like you know just, we just I love need... in that in that article where the um the two authors are like absolutely convinced that if they could only sit down it's like this kind of west wing thing right of like if they could only sit down with marx and engels and just you know have a beer and hash it out that they would they would come to terms and they would see that you know they were on the same side all along or something along those lines it's like if you're going to go up against marx and engels you better bring some fucking wide bore ammunition which they yeah, don't <laughs> not at all and like as as if Marx and Engels were not aware of the kind of arguments that they're making, right? Like, yeah. there's a lot more to the critique of private property and the critique of capital, the critique of class power um, and of class society in general than inequality, right? It's almost um, as if the it, two authors were dull fucking shills for the FT, you know? It's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Speculation, like idle speculation on my part. But, um, yeah, well, we wouldn't want to impugn their, their, their sterling reputations, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, but I mean, I think on the other hand, you can you can kind of reflect this critique back into the, the article we just read from the Labour Party, right? Where there is a tension in that document uh, between the uh, critique of private property, right? Uh, and on the other hand, the management of inequality, both on a class level, but also on a regional level, um, right? And so the, the critique of private property is a far more sort of radical agenda um, because it gets at the roots of the class society we live in um, and inequality is just about managing how much each class gets, right? And and I, I think it gives a certain amount of, um, it seeds a certain amount of, ex of acceptance of the existing state of affairs, right? Which I think is really what uh, the authors of this, uh, this piece we're discussing now um, are trying to get at, is that like, 
once you accept the terms of debate that are framed by this inequality term, uh, then maybe you're like, well, maybe we need to like bring it down a bit. Like, you know, maybe like the fact that half of the wealth of the world is owned by six people is like a little bit too much, mm. but, uh, maybe we could cut that down to 12 yeah, and, you know, right. then it wouldn't be so bad. Like it's, it's, um, it, it, it has a certain, uh, moderating or diffusing effect on, on the question. Whereas if you pose it in terms of like what they say, capital or class power, um, it becomes a much starker and deeper question. Mm. And it makes right. more sense. Uh, you know, it's like, a, right. It becomes tractable when you talk about it in terms of class and capital, right? Like inequality is sort of intractable, really. It's like, because you get that kind of um, immediate reaction of like, well, you'll never get rid of inequality. And then that like makes people give up, you know? Right. Which, and why will we never get rid of inequality? Well, it's because of this anthropological story that we tell ourselves, right? About the fall from grace, the division of labor, and then what that ends up creating. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so like the, the two authors kick off here with a kind of like an analysis of, of these like contemporary authors where I'm like uh, parroting this kind of myth and how it's sort of like, um, it all really comes back to um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, but what's, what's, what's happening here is that like these authors are writing about uh, pre-agricultural society or like early agricultural society with no actual evidence. They're taking Rousseau's kind of um, notion of the, the state of nature as just as a given and not bothering with empirical evidence at all. And then they're transhistoricizing current observations onto the past. And that's where you get that thing of like, well, we've always had kind of bizarre tyrants that like um seize power because they're transhistoricizing the like 80s ceo figure that they see in movies and like transplanting that onto the past um they're yeah it's like they're, they're taking the sort of trumpian sort of figure and then presuming that that was always there um right right um, and it like but that, that encourages to accept the despots and robber barons of today because they've always been around you know you can never get rid of these guys um which is nonsense, you know. Yeah, and, and I think uh, the sort of line of thinking that has come out of Piketty's book, um, where, you know, it, it sort of reframed uh, how we think about capitalism in, in, in saying that, like, you know, that period from the 40s to the 70s uh, was an exception, and the norm for capitalism is enormous inequality, um, immiseration, and so on, right? He, he did that. And there's a danger in that discussion, like on the one hand of, of, of sort of like going down the road of ineffective tinkering, which is what Piketty actually does at the end of the book. Um, but there's also a danger of sort of saying, well, it was always thus, right? Like, you know, the 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 brief period of greater worker power that we saw uh was really just like a, a one in a million thing that was like that was due entirely to these like very sort of situational elements um and fundamentally the arc of human history bends towards uh masters and peasants right like you know um so in trying to like sort of get away from that picture, uh, I think this article is pretty useful. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I think yeah, because like it's it's refreshing at the least. Like it is. Um, 
it's different and it's more useful as well because like that kind of um if 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 the if the arc of history bends towards tyranny then why, why fucking bother right like and that's you know it's it's a that that is that's kind of fatalism is then very useful to the um the tyrants right like the the people in power um so we, we you know we need to kind of like dispel this myth because it is a fucking myth right and like that's the thing that the uh, the authors get to here is that like for Rousseau, this was all this state of nature shit was a thought experiment, uh, which he outlined specifically as in this is not something I believe actually happened. This is a thought experiment to explore the the question that Rousseau was trying to explore was like why it seems that our drive toward freedom ends up delivering us into chains uh, quite often, um, and so he kind of like cooked up this kind of like thought experiment of like this this primitive. Um, primitive egalitarian society that then went through this fall from grace into a hierarchical society and so on. But that's not, you know, that's, that's not evidence. It's just some dude rambling about, like, wouldn't it be cool if, you know? Um, but that that's taken as an article of faith, right, by later um, later authors. Like, they just they just run with it, which is nuts, you know? Yeah, and, uh, and it, it's... Um... It's very much framed in terms of the the whole uh, Garden of Eden myth, right? Uh, because it's like, uh, as they say, uh, we get technology, we get civilization. In other words, we get knowledge at the cost of innocence, at the cost of equality, at the cost of caring about each other, right? So it's just like, well, you know, you got your iPhone, so mm. yeah, that's the thing, right? Like it's um, it's all it's all seen to be deterministic, right? That like having this advanced society means that like deterministically you get X, Y, and Z benefits, but you also get A, B, and C downsides. Like almost like it's a like Civilization Six tech tree where like the the branches are mutually exclu- exclusive, and um, there are like specific upsides and downsides to every sort of development, but um. No, it just it, but it's not based in, in anything really. It's um, this kind of thing. And yeah, like, and uh, he sort of cites some you know prominent uh, public figures who appeal to Rousseau's myth, um, uh, like Francis Fukuyama, uh, you know, who's been writing this gigantic tome on uh, the origins of political order, uh, basically trying to update um, modernization theory to provide a comprehensive account of human history and thereby uh, com- uh, permanently eliminate uh, Marxist uh, historiography. Um, and uh, we've also got uh, Jared Diamond, uh, you know, the, the guns, germs, and steel guy, um, who, who also appeals to the same myth for just, yeah, giving this, uh, this, this biblical picture of why we must live in a fallen world. And, like, biblical is the right word for it, right? Because it is um, it is obviously this kind of retelling of the fall from grace. But, like, um, the authors here have this kind of, like, really neat line about, like, how 2,000 years of scripture, like, really, really colors how you think. Um, and it makes it incredibly hard to get away from this kind of uh, conception of the world. But they also call for us to start considering what a non-biblical version of human history might look like. Um which brings us on to the kind of like the actual like section four where they sort of go through the actual kind of recent evidence um, or the kind of like the, the new picture that's emerging of our understanding of what life was like for these kind of paleolithic um, peoples. And we're sort of looking at this like uh, 
Upper Paleolithic era, which is about 45,000 years ago, uh, from there onwards. Um, and the kind of the key feature of that kind of life was these, um, like life in these game rich valleys with like seasonal herds of deer, bison, and mammoths, and these like um, other megafauna kind of wandering about the place. Um, and like crucially, this is very seasonal life, right? Like that um, the herds come and go, the fish come and go. Um, uh, weather shifts around in this kind of like cyclical sort of pattern and that's the context in which these early humans are embedded um yeah and it's it's cool stuff like it's um they're kind of looking at things like um there's the first thing they point out is this kind of like exist like we're, we're meant to believe that these were simple egalitarian sort of peoples who um didn't have much in the way of productive force but yet like like rich burials are, very, are quite common uh, all throughout this sort of era where individuals are buried with, frankly, absurd abundance of trinkets and jewellery like that would take enormous uh, productive force to, to actually craft. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's the the prehistorical equivalent of when uh, Elon Musk will be uh, it in, in uh, sorry entombed in his uh, great mausoleum upon yeah. the surface of Mars. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, right? <laughs> like, this is, this is, um... 1,000 slaves will be uh, killed and thrown into, you know, the great Martian god emperor's uh, palace. Uh, what a wonderful future. We have to look forward to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like no, this that is a good analogy though, because like this is crazy the kind of like wealth that's being put in here, and it's like it's again it flies in the face of the common narrative where these these were supposedly simple and like poor people who had very little material wealth um, and very little material kind of productive force, but were able to do this kind of thing like of um, burying seemingly very important people with like probably like hundreds or thousands of hours worth of human labor just attached to them and then leaving them in the ground and walking away, you know? Um, yeah, and and the, the, the sort of point here is that uh, this practice was sporadic and sort of irregular. Yeah. Right? Um, so it, it, it's, it, it's, it doesn't fit either side of the myth, right? That, like, it's, it's neither this primitive egalitarianism nor is it a permanent transition into tyranny, right? Because if it was, you would expect to see these these kings or whatever you want to call them being buried constantly there would be loads of them everywhere and you would also find evidence of uh you know fortifications and palaces and all this other stuff that goes along with hierarchical kind of rule but none of that shows up what you get instead are these like gigantic monumental uh like public works like um uh, things called mammoth houses that are like enormous uh huge tents that are like um made out of mammoth bones or even um the the example of a I'll never be able to pronounce this, but Gobek, Gobekli Tepe in um, what is present day Turkey, where there was just this, this huge stone sort of um, temple that um, curiously seemed to actually not last very long. Like these things were built um, with huge effort, and then after a like big feast and a like setting shit on fire orgy, they just buried the goddamn structures again. They like you know spent and this doesn't fit the myth either right that like human beings who were supposedly very again very poor and didn't have much productive force were spending their time making these enormous structures and carving them and all this sort of stuff and then just filling it in with sand again and wandering off like it, it doesn't fit anything in the kind of like traditional um, narrative at all 
It was really, really interesting. Um, but they were also still foragers, right? Like, the same evidence from the same era means that, like, no, they were just wandering about the place, foraging for things and um, just plucking stuff out of this abundant nature. And also kind of amusing themselves by just building shit and, like, filling, knocking it over again and then deciding they wanted to carve something into the side of this mountain and then getting bored and wandering over somewhere else. Um, yeah, SimCity is deep in our, in our history. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and, the, and, like, according to the evidence here, the, the seasonal rhythm was a major factor where, like, micro-cities would um, spring into life for one season and then be demolished immediately afterwards. Um but the, the kind of picture that emerges here is that human beings were, like, experimenting with social organization and doing so in this, like, cyclical uh, way, this kind of seasonal way, where they kind of understood that they were coming together in this particular location to hunt a particular kind of bison. And they would set up a massive city to do that and maybe elect um, or kind of install kind of leaders and, like, petty tyrants and so on with the understanding... Yeah, like a sort of an, an emperor, right? But with the understanding that they could just wander off at any time and ignore him. You know, that like a month a month later, they would just pack up their shit and go. And that that social structure would come to an end and something else would happen. Um, fascinating stuff, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that... Uh, the one of the things that was the most interesting to me was this idea of like seasonal ways of life and like seasonal seasonal hierarchies like you know in one season uh having a, a very sort of like top down uh tyrannical structure but then in the other season uh moving to something much more egalitarian um and i think we we, we definitely like see echoes of that in um in modern society here and there right um there are these sort of seasonal social arrangements that kind of buck the 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 normal conventions here and there uh that we can find but nothing quite as thoroughgoing as what uh, they're describing in this article mm. so what, what the authors are getting at is that like human beings are actually kind of adept at this sort of um playing with social structure and experimenting um and so it like really it really does undermine that kind of um old myth of like a deterministic sort of pathway from a primitive innocence through to a fall from grace and so on and then an inevitable uh descent into hierarchy and like tyrannical control um instead it seems that actually no like this was highly fluid um and this went on for tens of thousands of years as well and like Crucially, it also went on into the era of agriculture, where there, there, there doesn't seem to have actually been a distinct moment that was the agricultural revolution, where we flipped over. There's, there's an example they use where um, uh, these kind of uh, foragers in England started to farm uh, cereals and cattle, but then they gave up on the cereals, kept the cattle, and went back to harvesting berries and nuts with their cattle like it is so different from what we presume is the like natural progression again, again like what we see in like a game like civilization six or something where it's like this tech tree progression where from one node to the other of like you you settle down and then inevitably establish a farm and then inevitably establish territory and then inevitably you create these chiefdoms and then so on and so forth um actually no people got bored of this shit and went back to harvesting nuts 
Um, or like, I think there's a bit in there as well about like experimenting with, uh, with domesticated animals. Like they would, uh, keep the cattle for two seasons and then decide actually this is kind of a lot of work and we're bored of it. So they would eat them and then not, not bother again for another couple of generations. Um, yeah. So like, and it sort of closes out with this like call for a rethink that like the, the myth we've been telling ourselves is quite wrong. Um, we are now starting to see evidence at, of, a, of a different picture of human history. Um, that, that evidence isn't making it into like pop psy kind of books yet. Um, it'll be interesting to see when it does. But in the meantime, this actually throws open this whole field of investigation, right? Like that, what we thought was a deterministic locked down progression from uh, simple egalitarian living through to complex hierarchical living turns out to not be the case which is, like, really cool for our current project, right? Like, the, um, you know, re rejigging the um, relations of society to be more egalitarian and also not be slipping back into primitivism, right? Like, we don't, we don't want to do that. Like, and that's, it's, it's, it's nonsense anyway, right? But, like, this idea that we could only ever recapture that egalitarianism by going back to a prelingual existence is, is madness, you know? Yeah, and um, you know, one point that he brings up that's that's quite interesting is that uh, there are examples in um, you know documented history uh, of sophisticated um, hierarchical societies uh, transforming into uh, egalitarian societies, right? Uh, so, so for uh, example, they have uh, this uh, city of uh, uh, Teotihuacan uh, in in Mexico, uh, which was you know there's evidence that they had these giant pyramids and human sacrifices, um, and then they just kind of said, "Fuck that, nah, bored, and whatever," and the, knocked it all over. <laughs> <laughs> we we've had enough of this garbage, and then they went and like started building these like moderate sized homes, indicating like a much more uh, egalitarian society. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's to say that this 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 sort of like one way story of history um, doesn't really bear out when you look at some evidence mm -hmm. yeah it's good and this this is this is reassuring right like and i think this is kind of um there's an element to this that's a, like a little bit kind of i don't know like it's it's it, it it fits almost too well right that like we, we know graber is an anarchist and so on and it like coincidentally the kind of conclusion happens to support the uh at typical anarchist sort of uh positions but i mean i kind of buy it like i mean it is reasonably well cited or like a, it has citations and such, and I'm sure we could kind of follow up on a lot of this stuff and find out that yeah, this is legit research. So, um, but I suppose regardless of the, regardless of the exact specific details, it will turn out that like history wasn't in fact based on uh, Rousseau's imagination, right? Like there is in fact an empirical record to it of sorts, like um, as best as we can make out, and um, there is mounting evidence that. Um, we are actually capable of organizing complex societies that are not simple, simply like brutal bureaucracies, um, as, as we've been led to believe, which is good. I like it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think uh, 
there's really a lot to say about this article and like a kind of broad perspective of where it's situated today. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, it's it's interesting how Graeber kind of looks at this as like a, a glass or sorry, not just Graeber. <laughs> yeah, we were both of these offers. Yeah. <laughs> Let us not commit the sin of uh you know, uh, just silencing or, or the second author. So Wengro obviously has his say here as well. Um, and, uh, you know, they they do see this as like an optimistic thing. Um, it would be possible to see this as a very pessimistic thing as well, because you could say, well, if what is often called primitive communism um, did not exist, Right. If these if these uh, these early societies that were, uh, you know, equal in, in the Rousseauian uh, way uh, did not exist, then future communism has no uh, solid historical basis to point to as something that like could be developed upon. Right. Um, that that would be the sort of pessimistic way of looking at it. Right. Uh, that, that, you know, there is no uh, evidence to point to for like a trajectory of history that we are on and that we are looking forward to. Um, instead, they are, as you said, very much taking the anarchist tack here and saying, well, you know, yes, there were tyrants in the ancient past. Uh and there is, you know, always a capacity among uh, human beings to turn towards tyranny. Um, but uh, they emphasize, rather than emphasize that point, they emphasize the sort of experimentation and variety um, that was characteristic of those times and sort of try to push the idea that, you know, we can experiment more in our times as well. Yeah, um, yeah, because, like, they, they specifically call out that, like, the question is not so much uh, what are the origins of social inequality, but rather how did we get stuck? Yes, it is a fall from grace story, right? They, they provide another fall from grace story. Their fall from grace story is we used to experiment with things. Then we got caught into uh, sort of capitalist monoculture. Um, and in the future, maybe we will have more experimentation, right? So this is... This is a, another version of this kind of, uh, of this kind of story of of the primitive communism, uh, class society communism scheme that uh, they're criticizing. Uh, it's just a more anarchist version of that. Uh, but hey, we we all have to uh, <laughs> we all have to have some picture of the past. So yeah, I mean, uh, as as they say as well, like. 2000 years of scripture kind of hard to get over right like um yeah yeah this, yeah this unfortunately does still color our thinking even and even for these guys like it's still the kind of like the narrative framework we try to fit everything into um yeah and and i think that um i i really as i said i, do, I don't feel very qualified to sort of evaluate how this affects like his a marxist historiography Right. Like, I know there are Marxists who have done this kind of research and aren't mentioned in this article, uh, but I don't really know very much about what they've done. So I can't I can't really speak to it. I mean, you know, personally, I just kind of like the idea of of opening up uh, the room for for social experimentation, because 
you know, I do think that is an important part of any kind of socialist project, like as we've seen in the alternative own, uh, models of ownership uh, uh, paper, right? Like uh, having these these kind of ideas out on the page and, and trying different things out um, and looking around to how people do different things around the world, um, I think is all, all, t all to a positive end. Um, and, I, and I do think it's a, a useful antidote to the ways that in which Marx's um, sort of historical scheme have been abused uh, by uh, various uh, socialist organizations, um, you know, this was this was a major point that uh, Walter uh, Benjamin criticized uh, when he was talking about uh, uh, sort of second international or like um, pre World War II uh, social democracy. Right, that he, he he laid a lot of the failures of social democracy in stopping fascism to a belief uh, at the at the feet of this belief in automatic progress, um, in the belief in this historical scheme that would just like deliver us to communism, um, and it's also a thing we see, uh, for example, in uh, the the rhetoric uh, that comes out of the Chinese government. Uh, right in terms of well we're working towards communism but for now we're going to build like a middle class bourgeois society and like maybe uh, a lot of you are going to be poor and maybe communism isn't really on the table at the moment but just you know keep us in power for long enough and eventually we'll give you communism uh, that kind of thing is definitely very dangerous and I'm glad that there's stuff out there that gives us some ammunition to criticize it and to say well let's let's talk about now let's talk about things we can do now not things we can do in the indefinite future yeah definitely um yeah i think i wonder there might be some tiny sort of danger of getting a bit too far away from a kind of material analysis as well though that like um a lot of this sort of thesis hinges on the idea that like various um human groups with approximately equivalent sort of mode of production or like productive capacity or whatever you want to call it ended up creating from from their ideas ended up creating vastly different sort of societies and it's like so i think there might, there might be a danger of getting too far away from the kind of um, material kind of analysis there but like i mean it gets it, on the one hand you don't want determinism um which has been rightly sort of criticized and i think on the other hand you also don't want to disappear entirely into a kind of constructivist um black hole where everything is socially constructed and doesn't have any grounding in um in kind of material conditions either you know yeah yeah and uh i think it may be uh there's still sort of this like specter of homogenization that is behind this account um and you know that does suggest something about um the interlinking and complexity of modern society um, that that you know Graeber can or not sorry <laughs> <laughs> that Graeber and Wedgro could point to um, an overarching general problem of the modern world that we face right um, that we we generally face uh, a capitalist um, hierarchical. Uh, homogenous society um, that does kind of fall in line with the the argument about uh, 
sort of uh, progressive tendency towards this problem. Um, and in that sense, like, you know, there's probably a material story to be told there. But, uh, uh, I mean, I see this just going off in so many different directions. Um, you know, I, I think, like, one thing you could do would be to look at, like, sort of micro situations and to look at how people experiment with different social forms in ways that are not obvious when you just take a look at overarching capitalism. But I've seen that kind of research done by autonomous Marxists, and I think a lot of it is really bad. Um, just, you know, just to just to throw out some flames here. Uh, I mean, I, I, th I think there's a, there's a real danger in that kind of research of, uh, you know, sort of, picking out examples that support your idea of uh, resistance being everywhere and, and uh, you know, um, people always uh, sort of expressing their, their desire and their capacity for freedom in all of these different contexts um, without looking at any kind of bigger picture of like, what's you know what is the broader context for these 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 situations and like how significant are they in the big picture uh so i mean yeah i guess it's kind of where i come to it in the end is like i have reservations about the overall thesis but i sure find these examples compelling and interesting and and i'm all for uh I'm all for things that help to uh, free us from sort of set ways of thinking that keep us in uh, just uh, servitude, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but that's, that's that's where I am on this as well. Like, I kind of, I certainly buy the sort of gloss of it. Um, it would we would need to kind of dig into some of the details to figure it out. But I think, like, the in general, it sort of works as an argument. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just nice to see this as, like, an alternative to... Um, I suppose even an alternative to the stuff we saw in like um, the conclusion of All Watched Over, where um, we sort of have, have come to see ourselves as components in a rigid system that can't be challenged in any way. And it's like, well, no, it kind of can. Um, we are capable of organize, organizing ourselves in all sorts of different ways, right? Um, yeah, I think that's 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 been good. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we start to wrap up? Uh, no, I think uh, we've we've done a pretty good job today of just like covering the the topic of alternatives and uh and uh i i hope that uh people have interesting stories out there of alternatives and experimentation and all that kind of thing and if you want to tweet them to us then uh be happy yeah. to read them yeah definitely um we're on twitter as a gi unit pod uh, we're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. And um, a new thing, we're on Patreon now as uh, patre patreon.com slash General Intellect Unit. Um, if you've been enjoying the show, uh, maybe consider heading on over there to um, kick us a couple of bucks a month, um, which will help with uh, just stuff like books and hosting and this sort of thing. Like this, uh, this is a... You know, we're, we're starting to maybe get into some more expensive sort of literature um, that's uh, not as easy to find. And um, any little bit of help uh, goes a long way, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, as we said in our previous episode about alienation, uh, neither of us really expect that uh, <laughs> this, uh, this podcast is going to be our primary source of income or anything like that. But... Uh, 
I mean, yeah, but we we appreciate anything that you can contribute uh, and uh, like really, really appreciate it. And it will give us the time and the energy and the, the resources to uh, cite things that are more obscure or to bring sort of more uh, intense and book length content to this uh, to this show. Yeah, definitely. And like um, it'll just help us to keep ourselves alive as well which is kind of nice um yeah yeah i mean yeah. Uh, <laughs> i'm uh, certainly not swimming in money mm, uh, yeah i mean it, yeah uh, my, my kid is turning out to be kind of expensive so um <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's that too um yeah <laughs> but yeah so like i think something we should clarify as well is that like a lot of podcasts tend to have um kind of bonus content that you get by subscribing to the patreon um, and for us, we don't have the bandwidth to produce any extra material, but we also don't want to put any of the material behind a paywall. So mm-hmm. there's, for, like, and this is not, not something I'm going to, like, it's not a hill I'm going to die on, but for the moment, there's no sort of concrete rewards aside from supporting the show. But uh, I suppose you could almost think that the the main reward is not having half of the episodes disappear behind a paywall, right? Um, yes. yes. So... Yeah, but again, any help at all would be greatly appreciated. Um, And yeah, I guess we'll be back in two weeks with uh, the next episode. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Bye.